0: Two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies.
1: Well, hello and welcome back. This is Words and
2: Movies, and my name is Claude Call. And my name is Sean Gallagher. On today's episode, we're going to talk about two of the most influential science fiction movies ever made, both released, as it happens, in the same year. Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which he collaborated on with famed science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, and Franklin J. Schaffner's Planet of the Apes, based on a novel by Pierre Boulle.
1: Yeah, and, and as the first, it, as it happens, I think you couldn't have two more different movies that also at the same time had.
2: Very similar reactions at the time of release. Yes. And the first movie we're going to talk about is 2001. And on our very first episode, I mentioned that I wanted to have as an ongoing theme of our upcoming podcasts of how dialogue can be just as cinematic as images on film so naturally the first thing we're going to talk about is a film that has no dialogue for about the first 20 minutes and that's not even mentioning the fact that for most of its 140 minute running time there's almost no dialogue. Right and
1: and in fact I learned very recently that One of the things that Kubrick was considering for this film, as he does with so many of his movies, or did, um, is that he was actually considering narration for this movie.
2: Yes. In the novel that Arthur C. Clarke wrote to accompany the movie, um, he explains things that are happening and Kubrick was going to include the narration, but then he nixed it, which Arthur C. Clarke was a little distressed by at first, but then he realized that it worked.
1: It did, in fact. Okay. This is now, now typically when I can synopsize a film, I can do it in, you know, a couple of short sentences. It's practically impossible with this movie. I, I tried and I tried and I tried. Nope. This one's going to be a long one. But basically, and I, and I actually pulled this from a, a review that somebody did um, on, on uh, TiVo back when it was Rovi. But basically, it, it's, it's set down into four, four chunks, okay? The first one you have is called the Dawn of Man, where you have a group of hominids that encounters a mysterious black monolith that is clearly alien to their surroundings. Um, one of them invents the first weapon by using a bone to kill prey. As he tosses the bone into the air, Kubrick cuts to a 21st century spacecraft that is hovering over the Earth. So we've basically jumped a couple of million years in technological development. Um, Dr. Haywood Floyd is traveling to the moon to check out the discovery of a strange object on the moon's surface. Go figure, it's a black monolith. As the sun's rays strike the stone, it emits a piercing, deafening sound that fills the investigator's headphones and stops them in their path. We jump ahead again, 18 months, to the third section of the movie, where you have astronauts David Bowman and Frank Poole, who are on their way to Jupiter on the spaceship Discovery. Uh, Their only company is three hibernating astronauts and the vocal, man-made HAL 9000 computer, which is running everything in the ship. When HAL malfunctions, he tries to murder the astronauts to cover his error, forcing Bowman to defend himself the only way he can. Free of Hal and finally informed of the voyage's purpose by a recording from Dr. Floyd, Bowman journeys to the fourth section of the movie, Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite, through the psychedelic slit-scan Stargate to an 18th century room, and the completion of the monolith's
2: evolutionary mission. Okay, some background here Sure, about Kubrick and other things. Kubrick is not what I would call a consensus director, to put it mildly. Um, He has always um, divided critics. Even back then, Pauline Kael dismissed this movie. Andrew Sarris, her biggest rival, was also initially dismissive until someone told him to see it under the influence, as it were. (laughs) And then he wrote a correction to his original review and said that he now liked it. And Rock Hudson got up and yelled, what the hell was that? So 2001 may be the ultimate divisive Kubrick movie in that respect. As a matter of fact, when I was a teen... I was initially turned off by it. I was bored, given the fact that there was almost no dialogue. And I couldn't understand what was going on. And it took me another viewing to figure out what was going on, thanks to the fact that my father summed it up the way that you did. But I still wasn't quite sold on the... Last part, the Jupiter and Beyond part, but then after subsequent viewings, it did take a hold of. Okay, I I've got to admit
1: that that I I wasn't I also I I think I was a teenager when this film was released, and uh, not when it was released when I first saw it. Um, I, I had a similar reaction. I wasn't digging it at first.
2: <laughs> yeah, the inspiration for this movie. Came from a couple of places. One is after Doctor Strangelove, Kubrick wanted to make the proverbial quote unquote good science fiction movie. Because you have to remember, before 2001, science fiction movies were for the most part considered B movies, meaning lesser according to most critics. I mean, there were serious science fiction movies like, say, Robert Wise's The Day the Earth Stood Still from 1951 and uh, Don Siegel's Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956. But that was still considered a B movie for all intents and purposes. So Kubrick wanted to... Go further. For starters, he wanted to make a movie that was, even though it was about alien contact and space travel, seem as scientifically feasible as possible. So he consulted with a lot of people. Among them, Arthur C. Clarke, who he was told was the best hard science fiction writer around. And Clarke had written a short story called The Sentinel back in 1948 about people on the moon discovering a monolith type shape on the moon that sent a signal back somewhere. And more importantly, was a sign of intelligent life outside the Earth, in the universe.
1: Right, and if I'm not mistaken, the the Dawn of Man section of the film was actually partially based on another one of Clark's stories. Do I
2: have that right? I believe so, yes, although I don't happen to remember the name of that story right now. Mm -hmm. And he also watched... Documentaries about space, as well as um, Japanese science fiction movies, and one movie in particular that was very influential on him, which was from the National Board Film Board of Canada, was a documentary called Universe which was narrated by Douglas Rain, who is the voice of Uh Hal. That was one major influence on the movie aside from what Clark wrote. And what Clark and Kubrick did was they worked on the movie and the novel separately. Clark has said that the film is Kubrick and Clark, while the novel was Clark and Kubrick. And there are some distinct differences between the novel and the film. For example, in the novel, they go to Saturn, but Kubrick and his team of visual effects crew, which included Douglas Turnbull, who did effects for close encounters of the third kind among other movies couldn't figure out a way to get Saturn's ring to look good on film so they changed the location of the mission that David Bowman and Frank Poole go on to to Jupiter and another major change from the novel to film is that the way that Hal decides, or the reason why Hal decides to turn on everyone is left unexplained in the movie. In the novel and in the subsequent movie sequel, 2010, we learn that Hal was not comfortable with the fact that he was keeping the real purpose of the mission from the rest of the crew. And so this was his way of not having to keep that secret from the crew.
1: It occurs to me also that, that this was, I think, was it Trumbull's first big... Um, Special effects movie? Yes. Okay. And I I have to wonder if he wasn't inspired by his experience here to really go for making the Saturn's rings look good when he did Silent Running.
2: I would imagine so, yes. (laughs) Because that's a spectacular scene. Yes. And the scene in the movie where Al is reading the lips of David Bowman and Frank Poole when they're talking about possibly having to shut Hal down was not in the book, nor was it in the original script that Kubrick and Gary Lockwood, who played Frank Poole in the movie, independently came up with because the scene that was in the script wasn't working and Lockwood was feeling very frustrated about that. And he went away and thought of this and came back to Kubrick. And it turns out Kubrick was thinking along similar lines. And given the fact that Kubrick was noted for being a perfectionist who wanted to stick to what was in the script, that was something pretty unusual. Sure, but it did work. And I think Clark was a little bit worried about
1: it at first, and, well, it turns out we've got software that can do that sort of thing nowadays. So it wound up being a little bit more prescient than uh, I think even Clark anticipated. Yes.
2: Now, uh, there are other little details that are different from the novel and the movie. For example, in the movie, when you see David Bowman and Frank pool eating, they're sucking on straws from what are essentially food compounds, where in the movie, in the novel rather, they're actually eating real food. Now, it may have been somewhat synthesized as well, but they don't show that in the novel like they do in the movie. Well, that that completely was completely synthesized. That was actually kind of a
1: mixed bag because there were some scenes where they were sucking food out of the <laughs> straws. There was at least one scene because I, and, and I'll get to this in a little bit more detail in a minute. But there's one scene where you see Dr. Floyd and a couple of people eating sandwiches
2: but there is Yes, also that's a scene, when they're going to the monolith.
1: Right. But also when they're watching the BBC interview, they're eating with forks, this like paste-like food. So they're, they're, right. they're, they're, there's different versions of that. And in fact, when they're on the way to the monolith, there's, you don't quite see it. They, they cut just before it happens. But also, um, Haywood and company are about to drink coffee out of cups because you at just got some gravity on the moon. And I was kind of wondering how they were going to do liquid pouring out of a pitcher and they just Uh cut away right before
2: the fluid started to move. Yeah. Now, speaking of gravity, obviously there have been a lot of changes in special effects and visual effects from 1968 to now. And, i'm quite sure had kubrick had the technology available to him then he would have shown off people floating as if in zero gravity like he did like uh, ron howard did in apollo 13 or ridley scott the martian but what he does here, which is just as good, I think, is he suggests people who are trying to keep that from happening. The way the stewardesses on the flight that Dr. Floyd is on going from Earth to the space station and then from the space station to the moon, the way they're walking in a circle very carefully is a way of suggesting that that's what they have to do to keep from floating in the air. And then there's that scene of Dr. Floyd's pen floating in the air, and a stewardess gets it and puts it right back in his pocket.
1: Right. You can actually see there's one shot with a close-up of the stewardess's feet, and you can see she's got like these Velcro type shoes that are holding her to the ground and she's walking very carefully. And then the other thing that's kind of cool was the way they did the pen. Cause yeah, you could do wires and whatever else, but then they are more likely to show at that point. And my understanding is what they did was they took, so, they took a pen and a little bit of double stick tape and they taped it to a pane of glass And then they suspended the glass in front of the camera. So all the stewardess had to do was reach out and pluck the pen off the glass. And you can see her pull it just a little bit before she puts it back into
2: his uh, pocket. Right. But it's not something that's going to immediately show on first viewing. That's something that you pick on only when (laughs) you have watched us. Yeah, absolutely. Now, along with the visual effects... The most important element of this movie is the music. Originally, Kubrick was going to have Alex North, who wrote the score for Spartacus, do a score for this movie. But he had put up pieces of classical music as temp tracks, which is what you use in a rough cut screening of the movie, temporary music tracks, when you're trying to suggest the type of mood you're going for in a particular scene. And as it turned out, Kubrick ended up liking those temp tracks so much that he decided to jettison North's score. And just use the pieces of classical music, which I think ends up that much better.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think they work out really well. And they also have kind of a way of cueing the audience as far as what's going on. So, and, and, and the two pieces that we hear probably more often than anything else would be Strauss's also Sprague Zarathustra, which runs, I think, three times in the film. And then the other one would be the blue Danube waltz. Yes, and which is by a different Strauss, different Strauss. Johann Strauss. Yes. <laughs> right. And, and um, so the, the so the first time we hear uh, also Sprague Zarathustra is, is right at the beginning of the film as we get the yes. opening as we get the opening credits. Who does have a name in the book? His name Moonwatcher, and I, th- I yes. don't know if he gets a credit in the film for that name, but that's his name in the book. And um, so when when he basically invents the the tool with using the bone to to smash the skull of the uh, of the of the that's sitting in front of him, and then the third time around would be at the very end of the film when um, yes when Bowman is, is uh, transforming. And then likewise, likewise, we get um, the blue Danube. Really, it's only in the first part of the film, whenever we see the spaceships in transit and that we get this, you know, here's the beauty of space flight and, and here's the delicate dance that the, that the two ships are making as they dock with one another and, and, and that sort of thing. Once we're on the discovery, that music's gone.
2: Yes, although it does show up at the end credits as well, the entire suite plays. And I want to go back to also Sprax Zarathustra a bit. Mm -hmm. Strauss was inspired to write that piece from a book by Friedrich Nietzsche, um, the German philosopher. And in that book, Nietzsche talks about the Übermensch which is basically about man ascending to a higher plane of existence. So in a way, if you know that, that makes those two scenes of the hominid discovering that the bone can be used as a weapon and David Bowman ascending to become the star child play that much better. Yeah,
1: yeah. And 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 I think also it, it it but it also cues the audience when not so much that music, I'm coming back to the blue Danube actually, is, is when we're in space and not hearing the the Strauss Waltz. Okay. And and now it's a little bit more of a tense situation because we're dealing with the breathing and then the not breathing and that, that sort of thing. And, and also the, there's, there's also that constant background noise, whether it's you know the thrumming of the, of the ship's engines or the hissing of the oxygen coming in. And, and
2: so it's, it's all ambient sound at that point. Right. And then there's another piece of music we should talk about as well. Um, Georgi Ligeti's, Um, is a composer whose work that Kubrick used throughout the movie. And in particular, um, his piece Requiem Mm -hmm. is played whenever we see the monolith, when the hominids see the monolith on the earth during the Dawn of Man sequence, when uh, Dr. Floyd and the other scientists see the monolith on the moon, and then when uh, david David's solo on the ship and he sees the monolith, the piece plays during that as well. The only time the monolith appears and that piece doesn't play is at the very end, right before David Bowman becomes a star child because that's when... Um, the Strauss, also Sprock, the Arthur's plays instead.
1: Yeah, and and if I remember, and I'm going back like about a hundred years on this one, I I seem to remember that the Getty really, really didn't like his use of the
2: music in this film. Well, Kubrick didn't get permission to use it. That's was the sticking point. Well, yeah, that'll that'll tick you off too.
1: But 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 it wasn't just a matter of, of permission. It was like he saw that and he was like. Oh, I hate this. But that, oh, I can't remember. I I remember reading that
2: uh, sometime in the 80s. That's how long ago it was. Yeah, I did read something about that, but I was under the impression it was mostly the fact that he didn't get permission. Now, speaking of people not liking something about Kubrick's work when they've been associated with it, almost all the movies that, Kubrick has made have been adaptations of someone else's work. And while Stephen King is the most vocal about not liking what Kubrick did to his work when Kubrick adapted The Shining, other authors have been upset, other live authors that are. (laughs) I've been upset about what Kubrick did to their work. For example, Humphrey Cobb, what I've read, was not crazy about the changes Kubrick made to Paths of Glory. Um, Nabokov was of similar minds with Lolita, although a lot of that was for censorship reasons. Peter George was initially not happy about what was done to his book, Red Alert, to make Dr. Strangelove. And as I mentioned before, Clark was not initially happy about the changes that Kubrick had made from what he thought was going to be in the movie of 2001, especially the narration. Although Clark gradually changed his mind,
1: right, and, and I, I'm not sure about the others. I have heard about um, Stephen King. I, I can't say I disagree too much. I actually like the book better than the movie in that particular case. I don't usually have a dog in that fight, but but the book. Holy cow! That movie scared me. That book scared me. The movie, yeah, okay. So yeah, I would I have to.
2: I would have to agree with that. Uh, it is the lone Kubrick movie that I have still not completely embraced even upon further viewing. A lot of my friends disagree about that. They say as much as they like the novel and they like the movie even more. But for me... I just can't grab it
1: all right let's let's talk uh structure a little bit here one of the things i i i'd completely forgotten about for some reason was that this is a movie that has um it has it has a a, a an overture and it has an on track because there's an intermission yes and while the overture is not you know i here's the thing is i actually like movies with that sort of thing overtures if you're, for me, a good overture tells you a lot about the movie without telling you everything about the movie. And while it doesn't seem that way on its surface, well, that's pretty much what this music does in this particular case. Yes, it
2: is very dissonant when you first hear it. Now, you know, when I think overture, I think of Broadway musicals because most musicals back in the day would have an overture that generally played bits and pieces of the songs that you'd hear throughout the rest of the show. And even Hollywood musicals would, if not have a traditional overture, in their opening credits, they would have... Um, their score basically reflect all the songs that you were going to hear throughout the rest of the movie. This overture does set the mood for the movie, which is just as important. Right. Especially in as much as you don't get something
1: with, you know, a, like, like a, something up on the screen that says overture, you get black screen and three minutes Of this dissonant music. Yes. And similarly, well, first, when they go into the intermission, you hear the ambient noise all the way through, the screen going to black, the word intermission coming up. And that holds for, I don't know, something like 15 seconds before it finally goes completely dark. And then when they come back again, again, we've got black screen. And I'm pretty sure it's the same music as we come back from the intermission.
2: Actually, there is no music. It's just the um, sound of them going out, or the sound of Frank Poole going out into space to install that, or reinstall, I should say, that unit that Hal had originally thought originally told them was defective. And then there's complete silence once how disconnects or cuts Frank's oxygen tube. But we do get ambient noise, not score until that moment.
1: Okay. Maybe it was the version I saw that, that I took notes off of. It just gave me the same sound then. Um, and then the other thing is is the we we talked about this briefly before was the dialogue there's no dialogue for the first 20 minutes there's no dialogue for roughly the last 20 25 minutes and a lot of the dialogue that you do get is it's it's kind of banal really <laughs> it's 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 just people chit-chatting hey how's it going what's this sandwich you know that that sort of thing give my love to your wife and you know it, it, it's it, there's there's there isn't a ton of substance. And so you kind of have to be there with it when they actually start saying something that's
2: meaningful. Right. And I can see how that can be a turnoff to people. And it certainly was, as I mentioned before, a turnoff to me when I first started watching it um, back when I was a teenager. But I think in this case, it works. And part of the reason is something that Kira Dollier mentioned in a documentary that's included on the DVD edition that I have. You know, the fact that Hal 9000, in a way, is the most human character in the entire movie even though he's a machine and the fact that the humans on board the discovery are a little more robotic by contrast makes that come out even more and according to dhulia sort of what kubrick was going for
1: okay I can I can I can buy into that also you, the other thing that I noticed about um, both Bowman and Poole is that they're they're not friends they they're friendly but they they're kind of working in their their own you should excuse the expression orbits
2: well part of that is explained more in the novel mm-hmm. um, the fact that Bowman is up- during most of the time when Poole is sleeping and vice versa. So, for example, in the movie when Poole is playing chess with Hal or getting the message from his parents or when Bowman is showing Hal the drawings he's done and they're talking to each other about the mission... In the novel, it's shown that the other one is sleeping. The only time the two of them are basically talking together, aside from the interview that they do with the BBC newscaster, who, by the way, was played by a real BBC newscaster at the time. But the only time they're really together is when Hal brings up this supposedly defective unit and they have to work together.
1: Right. And actually now that I think about it, I don't know about the chess scene, but in the scene where Bowman is showing Hal the um the drawings, you you see him pass Pool asleep. Because Poole right. is in one of those and- same tanks that the other guys are in, but it's not activated the way the other ones are for the uh, hibernation.
2: Right. And then also when Poole is um, running around in the discovery. When we first with see him. that wonderful, yeah, with that wonderful shot that Kubrick and cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth do, which, again, to demonstrate the way that the discovery is built. Now... One thing I also want to mention, speaking of the dialogue and the way that people are communicating to each other, the hominids at the very beginning, you know, they communicate mostly by grunts and yells and things like that. But you can catch what they're basically indicating to each other. And I assumed these were real apes, but in fact they are not. Are a group of mimes that Kubrick hired and basically told to act like apes and they're in very realistic ape makeup and costumes so that they look convincingly like apes and they move like apes and i don't know if they sound like apes particularly but they certainly walk like apes
1: right and well there there are a few scenes where they do in fact sound like apes because they are using ape sound effects <laughs> so right
2: now kubrick is known as a very pessimistic, very cold filmmaker. And certainly, Dr. Strangelove, Paths of Glory, Clockwork Orange, all bear that out. And there's a review, or not an interview, that he gave to Rolling Stone when he was promoting Full Metal Jacket, that indicated that while he doesn't mistrust sentimentality, he's always aiming for what's true. And if sentimentality and emotion don't feel true, then he doesn't want to use them. But at the same time, as dark as the story gets, and you can't get much darker than a computer on a spaceship trying to kill off all the humans on board. But at the same time, I think there is something very emotional and, oddly enough, optimistic about the movie. The fact that David Bowman becomes a star child at the end, the fact that we know that in the movie at least one human connects to an alien, race out there is in a way very optimistic and very emotional. I know sometimes I get the feeling of Calvin in the old Calvin Hobbes comic strip where he says that the surest sign that there's intelligent life on other planets is that none of it has ever tried to contact us yet. (laughs) But in this movie alien life does contact us and we end up contacting alien life. And that I think is a sign of hope in a Kubrick movie.
1: Right. And, and similarly, there's, you've you've got a couple of scenes where characters basically have to swallow their emotions. They, they don't want to give the store away here. And I'm thinking specifically about, um, when Bowman first asked Poole to go into the pod so they can plot the possibility of having to disconnect Hal. So then later on, when we have this scene...
0: Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the pod against my hearing you. I could see your lips move. All right, Hal. I'll go in through the emergency airlock. Without your space helmet, Dave, we're going to find that rather difficult. Hal, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Hal? Hal?
1: And so you have Hal refusing to open the doors, and he's citing his reasons, and it's wonderful. And what happens is you see briefly about eight different emotions cross Bowman's face, but he's still trying to sound reasonably cool and reasonably composed because he's trying to convince Hal, no, opening the door would be a good idea here. Yes. So even places where there are emotions, yeah, Kubrick's kind of tamping them down a little bit on, on the characters.
2: Yes, it's almost like I haven't seen a lot of Brisson films, but Brisson mistrusted characters that expressed emotions like that. He wanted the audience to feel the emotions instead of the characters, and... That's sort of what Kubrick is doing here, and in this context, I do believe it works very well
1: right and and the other thing that occurs to me is also you know again, the combination of of the the way the people are speaking their dialogue, not that they're completely flat, but they're they're you know kind of keeping it all reined in, and where where the ambient noises are are doing a lot of the heavy lifting in this particular film. And the only time you get something that's more than that is – well, there's two places. One is close to the beginning of the film when the monolith puts out its signal, okay, and you get that high whine for several seconds before they cut away to the Jupiter mission. And then the second place would be when Hal kills the other crew members and all of a sudden the alarms start going off and nobody's there to hear them. So you get the beep, 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 and it's, wow, that's piercing, because you're so used to everything being so much lower until that point. And so you get the beep, 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 and then you get the second beep as life functions are terminated.
2: But other than that, not so much. Wow, well, is trying to communicate as well the silence of space. Again, that's a reaction to the science fiction movies that had been made before them.
1: All right, is there anything else special you'd like to
2: bring up as far as this film is concerned? One other thing I'd like to say in summing up. Like a lot of his other movies, 2001 has been analyzed by a lot of intellectual critics. And in that Rolling Stone interview I mentioned, Kubrick said about his movies in general that he didn't like when people over or over-intellectualized his movies. That he wanted people to experience them. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the next movie in the program, which is the original Planet of the Apes.
1: Yes, and fortunately, this one is a little bit easier to synopsize. Um, we have Charlton Heston starring in this film as George Taylor. He is one of several astronauts who are on a very long space mission. The spaceship crash lands on a planet that seems to be, at first, devoid of intelligent life. Uh, soon they learn that the planet is ruled by a race of talking, thinking, reasoning apes who hold court over a rather complex and multi layered civilization. Um, but in this society, human beings are inarticulate primates and they're penned up like animals. Um, When leader and Dr. Zaius discovers that the captive Taylor has the power of speech, he's horrified and he insists that the astronaut be killed. But ape scientists Cornelius and Dr. Zira risk their lives to protect him and to discover the secret of their planet's history that Dr. Zaius and his minions are guarding so jealously. And in the end, it is Taylor who stumbles on the truth about the planet of the apes.
2: The movie is based on a novel, as I mentioned at the beginning, by Pierre Boulle, who is a French writer who also wrote the Bridge on the River Kwai novel, which was made into an Oscar-winning movie. And the novel and the movie are somewhat different. For starters the novel is set in the not-too-distant future, whereas the movie is set in the 39th or 40th uh, century. 3978, according to Taylor's chronometer. 3978, yes. And another thing is that Taylor's name is different in the uh, novel. And while there are a couple of characters who keep their names, Zira and Cornelius and Nova, the woman that Taylor connects to in the movie, who in the novel actually speaks, she doesn't speak at all. But the society is much more advanced on the planet in the novel. Now, the reason why that was cut down to a more primitive society in the movie is simply because of cost. Rod Serling, in his original script had written for the Ape Society to be advanced, but they couldn't afford to shoot it that way. So Michael Wilson, who was one of the writers on the movie version of Bridge on the River Kwai, as it happens, although he wasn't credited till much later because he had been blacklisted at the time, he rewrote the movie... Make the Ape Society be more primitive so that they could afford to make the movie. Yeah, well it's it's a mixed bag and it's almost a it's
1: almost a plot hole because you see things like paper and pens and there's gotta be some means of doing it, and there's no way you're doing it in the Flintstone village over here. You know, it's almost as though there's an implied more advanced society somewhere else, and this might be like I don't know, like an out village or something like that. Uh, just because it's it's tough to reconcile some of the things that you see in the film with the 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 way that that the apes are are living.
2: Well, some might be inclined to disagree with me on this, <laughs> but I think part of that is due to the director. Schaffner, he is one of those directors who started out in television in the 1950s, along with people like John Frankenheimer and Sidney Lumet. But if you watch what Frankenheimer and Lumet directed for television back during that time, you could already tell that they had the visual skills to make it when they came to Hollywood to direct movies, whereas Schaffner I don't think really did. There's a huge difference in visual quality between the teleplay of Twelve Angry Men, which Schaffner directed, and the film version that Lamette made counting all the other differences between the two and i would say that along with planet of the apes the best movies that schaffner did were propelled by the story and the performances patton is an okay movie made into a good one thanks to a great performance by george c scott But when the camera is not on Scott, the movie suffers a lot. And I think that comes true here. I mean, there are places in the movie where Schaffner does coordinate things. For example, when Taylor and other humans are being chased by the apes. But there are other times where... Schaffner and the cinematographer Leon Shamroy, who was twentieth century one of twentieth century Fox's in house cinematographers, where they place the camera in some scenes just doesn't make any sense to me. You have an example of that? Well, during the trial, for example, when Taylor is on trial, well. Actually, Zira and Cornelius are as much on trial for the research they're doing. And while there's a nice close-up of Taylor when he's being pushed back by two apes who are trying to prevent him from speaking, there are some master shots of when Zira is to the tribunal, one of which is an ape who's played by James, character actor James Whitmore. And it's a long shot of her speaking. And we don't get to see the expression on her face when she's imploring them to see Taylor as something more than just an animal. And we, that would be okay if we were seeing the reaction of the other apes but we're not seeing those reactions. Yeah,
1: I, I actually now that I think about, it, I kind of agree. The the y shots are all pretty good. Okay, the scenes are 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 good. You see a lot of stuff going on. You know, they're these not too egregious with the zooms. And incidentally, it's like you know, not until what about twenty five minutes into the film will you get the ape reveal. You know, you see. Horses in the distance. You see, like the bottom half of horses and feet and that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, the camera tilts up, and holy cats! These are gorillas on the horseback. Um, but but when the people are being beaten out of the cornfield, when they are being chased and into the ditches and into the water and 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 that kind of thing, um, and and then the scenes where Taylor is getting chased around the ape city. There's there's a lot of action going on. There's a lot of movement. Um, there's one scene in the Ape City where the camera is literally upside down. Um, you know, you, you see a lot of a lot of cool stuff there. The only complaint I would have about those action scenes is those those gorillas. You think they would be better at using the nets, but they seem to miss an awful lot. And, and there are times when the actors are trying to compensate for the fact that they've missed. And, and uh, nope, that shot didn't work. But for the most part, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, you know, there, there are times when I think, and I don't know who gets the credit or the blame for this, but I think there were a couple of times when they were a little bit heavy-handed when it came to, you know, some of the comments on society in general. Um, you know, things things like just taking some of our, our typical cliches and turning them around, human see, human do, you know, that kind of thing. And, and uh, also the... Uh, the scene during the trial where, uh you know, Zira and, and Taylor are kind of pleading their case. And at the same time, you'd get this shot where they're almost trying not too hard to mimic the three monkeys, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. It's like, yeah, OK, we get it.
2: <laughs> well. That was actually an improvised moment that the three actors did, and Schaffner liked it and kept it in there. So that's not the fault of the writing. Although, according to one of the producers on the movie, Mort Abrahams, um, he was an associate producer, another writer was brought in to rewrite some of the dialogue after Wilson had done his script. And he added a couple of lines that sound pretty clunky today. Uh, Taylor says to Zero's nephew, don't trust anyone over 30 or words to that effect. You know, that when you have Charlton Heston who at the time admittedly was a liberal but later became one of the most conservative actors working in Hollywood that line doesn't work anymore
1: well it, and and also it was it was it was a 60s cliche really it was some one of those things that you would see on you know buttons and and, and that kind of thing so again it was a means of you know taking a common phrase and just you know, using it for a slightly different purpose.
2: Now, one very good part of the movie is Jerry Goldsmith's score. Um, Jerry Goldsmith was one of the best composers to work in Hollywood and does a lot of different things with drums and then also dissonant sounds. Especially when Taylor and the other crew members at the beginning are walking on the planet and you see the shots of those scarecrows, which indicates to us that something bad is going to happen.
1: Right. And of course, they ignore the scarecrows, forgetting the fact that they are the crows. (laughs) but, but, yes. but yeah, I, I think the only place for me, anyway, where, where the musical end of the soundtrack doesn't work, and I'm guessing this is not Goldsmith's fault specifically, is when they do the reveal of the female astronaut and we see that she's dead and you get that weird screechy note for a couple of seconds.
2: Yeah, that was kind of overdoing it, but because it was only a couple seconds long. Just about the length of the shot, I didn't dwell on it too much. Now, getting back to the apes again, um, John Chambers was the man who was responsible for the makeup on the apes. And he won uh, Oscar that year for the makeup. And although you could argue over which is better, the ape makeup in 2001 or the ape makeup in Planet of the Apes, I would have to say it's done very well. The only complaint you might have is that their mouths don't always move a lot. But other than that, I thought it looked very good.
1: Yeah, I, I think it looked good too. And and the other thing, and I, Roddy McDowell picked up on this immediately. But you can see in some of the characters when they're not necessarily doing anything, the 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 ape makeup looks a little more mask like. And and Roddy McDowell kind of figured out that no, you've got to be like moving little elements of your face the whole time. So you'll see him just kind of like. Wiggling his nose or moving his eyebrows or doing some kind of business with his face, so that it is always in motion, which you don't always catch
2: with with some of the other actors. Now McDowell, we should mention, plays Cornelius, yes. and Kim Hunter, who I also think good, is Zira. Yeah, actually, there there were a so, few and a few names in this film. Yes, um, James Whitmore, as I said, is a character actor. He was in The Asphalt Jungle. He was in Kiss Me, Kate. He plays the head of the tribunal. And originally, Edward G. Robinson was going to play um, Dr. zayas but he declined, and Maurice Evans was um, the actor who played zayas
1: Right, and, and again, I think, I think he did a, a fine,
2: fine job of it, too. Yes. Now... The biggest part about the movie that everyone remembers is the ending. Oh, my
0: God. I'm back.
2: I'm home. All the time. We finally really did it. You maniac! You blew it up! Ah, uh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! Now, when Rod Serling wrote the script for this movie, the ending that we see in the movie was his idea. And although um, the script, as I said, was rewritten to change the way the Ape Society was, they kept that ending And even knowing that it was partly taken from not just the book, which has a surprise ending in a different way, but also a Twilight Zone episode from the first season called I Shot an Arrow into the Air, which is also about a um, spaceship Landing not where they thought they landed, it's still very powerful
1: right, and I guess we should we should talk about the 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 book itself for just a second here and 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 that ending um the book is is a little bit different in the sense that the mo the bulk of the story is is framed around something else, which you basically forget before you you've gotten very far, but the story that's being told is is a found manuscript. There are a couple of astronauts out in space, and they find this this manuscript, and they read through it, and they get to the very ending, and they decide it is complete nonsense. Nobody would ever believe this, and it turns out that the astronauts themselves
2: are apes. Yes, although I like what the movie does better. And the other thing
1: I wanted to bring up about that ending is I... I saw somewhere that there was some talk about what they wanted the Statue of Liberty to look like when he first saw it. So some people were like, wanted it to be in several pieces and some people wanted it to be almost unrecognizable and, 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 and that kind of thing. And they finally settled on this shot where it's halfway buried and semi melted. And, and, you know, it, it's really, really effective, especially when, you see the reverse angle when you're just kind of the the camera is moving to one side and you're you're kind of looking through the the spikes on the crown and you're still not sure what you're looking at until we do the reverse angle again and then we tip up to see the whole statue
2: yes and that's an example of where a long shot and then moving in for that zoom on Taylor's face does really work because it makes that moment all the more powerful. Now, I have to say this again. I am not the biggest Charlton Heston fan out there. And we're only talking about as acting here, not as politics. There are numerous conservative actors whose acting I'm a big fan of. Heston just isn't one of them. But the way he delivers that final speech is incredible. You know, I can imagine with someone else doing it, but I think he makes it work. Yeah, I think so too. I
1: mean, you know, when he's in when he's in the cage and he's doing that, it's a madhouse routine. It's like, okay, we're overdoing that just a little bit, but he really needed to, really, really over not overdo it, but but he needed to express just a ton of anguish and a, the, just the the pain of suddenly understanding what's been going on the whole time. And I yes, I, I believe he he absolutely carries
2: it off and. While the subtext of when the movie came out was that given the Cold War was still going on, that his line, you blew it up, meant that one of the superpowers might have started World War III, the subtext now where we've got this epidemic going on that could possibly, if you're as much of a pessimist, (laughs) turn the earth the way it's depicted in this movie, makes it hit even closer to home, let's just say.
1: Yeah, I get that, and and frankly, wouldn't you be upset if you had spent a lot of time somewhere and discovered you were in North Jersey the whole time? That would be just, nah, not so good. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that the, the the film did set up well, it didn't really set stuff up, but it, it kind of established a background for for the storyline. And then when the movie actually wound up making money, and and, and this was one of those films that that also believe it or not, had mixed reviews. There were people who thought it was great and there were people who hated it and there were people who hated it based solely on the title and they had to go see it. And Roger Ebert defended it a little bit. He was like, you know, look, you know, it's it's not going to be, you know, a terribly intellectual film. Just, you know, be prepared to lower your brow a little bit and you'll enjoy it. Um, but it did make money and it did make enough for uh, Fox to want to make sequels. And what I realized in talking with you about this several weeks ago was that the sequels kind of undo the ending of this movie in the the sense that they set up a kind of cycle of events when you've got Beneath the Planet of the Apes, where the world gets destroyed a second time, okay? Then you've got Escape from the Planet of the Apes where Cornelius and Zira and a third ape named uh, Galen um, managed to find and repair Taylor's ship and come back to 1970s Earth. And Zira has the baby who grows up to be Caesar, who winds up being the first speaking ape. And now that's why they take over the world. And it has nothing to do
2: with World War III happening. Right. The racism subtext, In the original movie, the producers claimed they hadn't exactly planned. They went deep into it in at least the first sequel that I saw. Now, unfortunately, it's my opinion that the movie wasn't as good as the first one, partly because the actors playing the other crew members who were in this weren't good or as distinctive but also the writing and the directing weren't as sharp even with the caveats i've made about the first one but nevertheless they did Take the racism subtext of the first one and ran with
1: right and 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 while they kind of backed off on that for the third film because that was really like, well, how do we prevent these apes from taking over the world as you get into the fourth and fifth one oh yeah we're we're definitely in in a a race discussion at this point because now the apes are slaves in the fourth film, and in the fifth one, well the apes have taken over at this point, but they're still Kind of sort of coexisting with the people and the, we're, we're starting to establish the 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 caste system of the gorillas are going to do this and the chimpanzees are going to do that and the orangutans are going to do the other thing and the people are mostly afterthoughts and you know what I discovered recently is that despite all those I mean well I mean 2001 opens up with these gorgeous gorgeous panoramic just you know, shots of of the the what would supposedly be the Serengeti and that that kind of thing, you know, where the dawn of man took place in Africa. But there is only one scene in that entire film that was shot outdoors, other than those establishing shots, and that would be the one. Yes. And that would be the one where Moonwatcher throws the bone up into the air, and everything else is yes. done on a soundstage and then used different effects to to make it look like outside.
2: Whereas on Planet of the Apes, everything was shot on location. Well, on a location, as it were.
1: <laughs> yeah, we got all that 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 was it, was it Lake Powell, I think, and um and Grand Canyon porn there? It was a whole bunch of beautiful, again, also, but desolate type uh type footage.
2: So any final thoughts on that on planet of the ebbs before we wrap this up? No, I, I, I think, uh, I, I think I've
1: pretty much done my bit there. Um, I, I, I just wanted wondered if, if you had any thoughts about like the two of them together, considering like just how remarkably different they are in their outlook, despite coming from roughly the same period of time. And both of them also kind of took a long time to make, you know, uh, uh two thousand one was actually finished shooting in sixty seven and they just had to do like a couple of hundred effect shots to get the thing ready for release in nineteen sixty eight and I think similarly uh Planet of the Apes went through a long development period as well, if I remember correctly, so they both had they they both percolated for a little while and still managed to start in similar places and yet End in similar places and still have very, very different outlooks.
2: I think these are these two movies here are an example of how movies can be both a product of their time and yet, if they work, be timeless. You know, 2001 was made during a time when the U.S. and the Soviet Union. We were both planning trips to the moon. I'm sure you've heard the old joke about how Kubrick was actually behind faking the moon landing, but mm-hmm. because he's such a perfectionist, he actually went to the moon to fake the landing. Mm-hmm. And Planet of the Apes was, in addition to the racism subtext that I mentioned, was also, well, we better be careful and take care of our planet. Otherwise, this is how it's going to end up. And in fact, as I recall,
1: when we first do that edit in 2001 that goes from the bone to the, to the space station, well, it's not, it's not the same space station, but a, a, an object in space, that's actually supposed to be a nuclear platform warhead platform, which later on in the film, the star child destroys before the film ends. And um, that was one of the subplots that uh, Kubrick finally decided, nope, not going to do that, which turned out, again, to be kind of prescient because it wasn't long after that, that there was a treaty between the United States and and the Soviets which said, no, we're not going to put nuclear arms in
2: in outer space. Right. So these movies are talking about things that, you know, we thought uh, that people thought about the time, but we're still pondering today. And maybe that's why both of these movies have elements in them that come off as sixties, the -hmm. costumes, in 2001, some of the dialogue in Planet of the Apes. And yet, again, they're still timeless. And that's why they hold up very well. And I think
1: that is a good place to stop. So in the meantime, what do we got coming up next time around?
2: Next episode, we're going to be talking again about the 60s in a way, dealing with Two movies about two of the major civil rights leaders of the 60s. Spike Lee's biopic of Malcolm X and Ava DuVernay's Selma, which is about Martin Luther King and his march on Selma to get President Johnson and Congress to pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Okay, and and in the meantime, where can we find you on the web? I'm Sean Gallagher. I'm on Facebook, and you can reach both of us if you have questions about this episode and other upcoming episodes by emailing us at wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com.
1: And I'm Claude Call, and you can find me on Twitter at Claude Call. And you can also look for my other podcast, How Good It Is, at howgooditis.com.
2: So until next time, this has been Sean and Claude of Words and Movies saying farewell. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.